Chapter 3, Part 1 of Shores of the Polar Sea, a Narrative of the Arctic Expedition of 1875-6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter 3, Part 1. An anxious watch was always kept for any favorable movement of the ice, but, meanwhile, the broad, smooth flow alongside afforded a tempting, exercising ground, whereon, after working hours, some played football, and others took their first lesson in dog-driving. The ships happened to be secured in a sort of basin fifteen fathoms deep, but with shallower water all around, so that the bottom was protected from the scrapings of icebergs. It was evidently a favorable spot for a haul of the dredge. Our expectations were more than realized. The net came up full of strange creatures, here a fish with a sucker under his chin, there a brittle feather star with long branched arms. He has to be extracted most carefully from the bag, and supplied with some cotton to grasp before being consigned to our naturalist's ever-ready bottle. Next comes a terabratula, or lamp-shell, anchored by a strange chance to a fossil terabratula drifted from some neighboring rock here are pale vermilion-colored antlers of escarella and delicate lacework of retipore polyzoia and here perhaps greatest prize of all a little calcareous sponge with a double frill glistening like spun glass the dredging operations were continued far into the nominal night and after a little necessary rest we started to explore the island a steep wall of ice foot encircling the land disputed our inroad clambering up over it we were at once struck with the terraced condition of the shores on the north side of the island especially the ridges rose one over the other in long horizontal waves to the number of twenty or more even on the highest sea shells were to be picked up each ridge was tipped here and there with little mounds of yellow clay, sometimes in lines at right angles to the ridges. The shore was very barren. A few little gray tufts of grass, or draba, found root in the mounds of yellow clay. All the rest was small stones weathered into sharp points like cinders. When we reached the northern shores of the island, a number of conspicuous white objects strewn along the lower terraces excited our curiosity. They were bones of walrus and seal, much broken evidently by the hand of man, but fragile and moss-grown with age. Some long-vanished tribe had doubtless found this lonely island a rich hunting-ground. The western point of the island was covered with the foundations of a complete town in some places mere rings of stones had served to keep down the edges of summer tents of skins in others rectangular enclosures three yards broad with excavated floor and with traces of porch opening seawards gave unmistakable evidence of more permanent habitation deep carpets of velvety moss found rich soil in the floors of the huts which had doubtless been no cleaner than that of modern eskimo a little further inland we came upon a bird shelter such as the natives of danish greenland still use to encourage geese and duck to settle on their shores 
it consisted of four stones piled together like a miniature druid's altar so as to form a chamber large enough to shelter a nest generations of eider duck had been hatched in it in security since the last wild hunter left the shore when we found it it held a deep nest of eider down with three eggs fresh but cold probably belonging to a duck we had killed before landing the traces of former human habitation found on this island as well as at other places further northwards seem to be about equally ancient all told not of fixed habitation in these inhospitable lands but of the exodus of some migrating tribe whose hunters must have travelled far with their dog sledges if the walrus and seal were as scarce then as now no doubt the arctic highlanders who told kane that an island rich in musk oxen lay far to the north had occasionally dispatched hunters in that direction but no mere hunters would require such a town of huts nor would they take the trouble to build on a new site at each visit without disturbing the circles of stone close beside them similar ancient remains have been found far westward through the perry group and have been attributed to that host which in the fourteenth century swept downwards from the unknown north and annihilated the norsemen but in our case the broken walrus and seal bones though lichen grown and evidently very old could hardly have lasted five centuries even in an arctic climate after three days detention in franklin and pierce bay the ships succeeded in creeping up inshore past cape prescott and a broad glacier-headed bay which has since been called after professor ullman every one was on deck as we rounded cape hawks into dobbin bay at midnight on the twelfth august for the scene that was opening beyond the tall shadow of the cape was one of unusual splendour altogether different from such ideas of far northern scenery as we had gleaned from books it has somehow or other become conventional to represent arctic skies as dark and lowering and arctic day as little better than uncertain twilight nothing could be wider from the mark at least during the months that travel by ship and sledge is possible washington irving island threw a long shadow towards us across the lilac tinted flows and gleaming water spaces which broke into ripples as our iron prow pushed towards them as we rounded in close to the island every telescope was fixed on a strange point on the top of the bluff standing out clear and sharp against the northern sunlight it was either a very odd pinnacle of rock or a cairn and that too remarkably well placed we could soon decide for the back of the bluff afforded a steep but practicable ascent the conglomerate rock of the summit was smoothed off like a mosaic by the action of some ancient glacier but near the edges it broke into a succession of rocky ledges and on the topmost of these stood the object of our curiosity a conical pile of well-packed stones a second similar one stood a little lower down to the southwards both plainly the work of a painstaking builder but who was that builder not eskimo structure and site forbade that suggestion civilized man had but once visited this shore and that was when dr hayes in the spring of eighteen sixty one halted his tired dogs on the floes beside the island 
he did not climb the bluff and besides such an active sledge traveller would not have loitered to build a pair of cairns except at some crisis of his journey and then he would have referred to them in his journal but the cairns themselves bore witness that they were not the work of any modern builder lichens grow but slowly in these regions dr scott found sir edward perry's cairn untouched by them after thirty-two years and the wheel tracks of his cart were fresh as yesterday's when after the same interval sir leopold mcclintock crossed his track these stones on the other hand were cemented together by deep patches of orange lichen the growth of many generations we found no record or scratched stone to tell us the names or fortunes of the men who had left the cairns as witness to us their successors perhaps some baffled wanderer whose fate is unknown to fame had thus marked his furthest north there is plenty of room for conjecture many have sailed for the northern el dorado since carl's fini skeltic norseman left his greenland home and launched his three ships on the first arctic expedition eight hundred and seventy years ago for a week after leaving the island our progress northward was a constant struggle with the pack here in the broad basin opposite humboldt glacier the atlantic tidal wave through baffin sea terminates and leaves an icy barrier to mark its limits had not that barrier consisted of much broken floes lying off a continuous coastline it would have been impossible to force any ship through it but aided as we were by the shore twenty-eight miles were made good a week never did the prospects of the expedition seem less cheering but we comforted ourselves with the knowledge that the polaris a fortnight later in the season had made her magnificent run into robeson channel without much difficulty with constant watchfulness and unremitting labor the way northward was won mile by mile every hour opened up some fresh possibility of advance or some new danger to be combated the tired watchkeepers found little rest during their short spell below almost every one turned in without undressing the tearing and splintering of the ice along the ship's sides and the creaking and crushing as she charged the floes made sleep difficult all hands up screw and rudder became a familiar order and twice during the week it became necessary to cut docks in the floes to shelter the ships from pressure on the first occasion the heavy ice saws swung on tripods and worked by every hand on board did their work readily but on the second day they were found too short to reach through the thick ice and nothing but rapid blasting with gunpowder saved the ships from an overwhelming crush at length we found the rising tide flowing not from the south as it had done but from the unknown north it was the nineteenth august the barrier was passed pools and lanes of water became more frequent and on the twenty first we steamed through a sea which morton leader of kane's northern party might well call open for the ice fragments floating in its intensely green water were not numerous enough to prevent a slight swell which gave our wardroom lamps the old familiar swing as we passed cape constitution kane's furthest the air six degrees below freezing 
warns us that this year's navigable season is already far gone but the dazzling sunlight ahead shows but little ice save the film already forming on the sea twenty hours steam at this rate would take us beyond where ship had ever sailed but alas open seas inside the polar ice are disappointingly limited fragments of pack increase in masses and at length stretch across the channel in a long white line from shore to shore but a degree and a half of latitude has been gained and the eighty-one degree parallel lies five miles behind us as the ships are secured between hannah island and the gray cliffs of bessels bay the island is merely a number of gravel mounds forming a convex breakwater in the entrance of the narrow fjord looking northward from it hall's basin lay before us bounded on the right by cape morton and joe island and far away beyond the mouth of peterman fjord the valley of hall's rest and the distant headlands of polaris promontory while to the left at the other side of the strait the snowy cliffs of grant land formed the western lintel of robeson channel there was little time to explore the island a sketch which supplies the accompanying engraving was just complete when the signal for recall flew from the foremast of h m s alert a lead had opened to the northwestward the whole of the ice was in motion and that night both ships reached the northern shores of lady franklin straits before the closing pack barred further progress end of chapter three part one recording by david wales